0: Morning, everybody. Father, we do pray now uh, that your word will be effective in our lives. We thank you for your word. We do pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will touch each one of us here today. I pray, Lord, that I might speak your word truly. And if not, Lord, that people will check it out in the the scriptures, that they would see for themselves the promises, the exhortations, the commands... The joy, the blessings, everything, Lord, that you give us through your word and through being able to know Jesus as our Lord. So we give you thanks today. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. For our visitors, we've been looking through the book of, or I have at least, uh, the book of Philippians or the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And I spoke in November last because in December I gave a different message, one of hope for the new year. So today I'd like to begin to look at chapter 2, but in view of the length of time between today and November, I'd like to remind ourselves of some important points originating from chapter 1. We do this for two reasons. Firstly, for the sheer importance, and secondly, because chapter 2 commences with the word, therefore which connects what Paul writes in chapter 2 to what he's already written in chapter 1. We're not going to look at the whole of chapter 1, but turning to chapter 1, first of all, a very important verse, I believe, um, certainly for my life, I hope for yours also. Verse 21. So we're looking at Philippians 1, verse 21 to start with. Have a look at that verse. For to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ had become for Paul the motive of his actions. It was the goal of his life and ministry to know Jesus and the source of his strength. Have we as believers really meditated on this verse and acted upon it and can we, can we honestly say that we do everything for the glory of God? This would include always putting our own preferences and agendas into second place to what we believe the Lord is asking of us. Now, a bit of personal history, you've probably heard me say these things before. Personally, I feel this becomes easier the older we become as we lose some of the responsibilities that we have when we are young. For example, once our children are grown up and move, probably get married and move into a home of their own, our initial responsibility for their welfare ceases. The same could be said when you reach retirement. If we're able to rely on our pensions and savings, we don't face the same pressures that we have if we're working to keep the family and pay the mortgage. So we have less things to worry about in the material sense and the secular sense and perhaps more time for God. But don't misunderstand me. I don't offer these as genuine reasons for not putting God first in everything, only that these distractions hindered the closest of my own relationship and walk with the Lord especially when you're young. Where's Michael? Is he still there? Oh, he's got... Oh, right. Shame. But when you're young, you have such an opportunity to follow the Lord, don't you? And don't we all wish that we had turned to the Lord when we were younger? I certainly do. Anyway, hopefully I've progressed somewhat in my retirement. Another thing that concentrates the mind, and I, I don't wish this upon anyone, is a heart attack, of course, these things also seem to bring eternity into sharper focus. Is Jesus, you know, really our reason for being like he was Paul's? Now, you may remember that, moving on a bit, from my previous talks on Philippians, I've said that it's a very practical book because it contains many exhortations and encouragements. And I think they're relevant not only to the believers of Paul's time, but to believers down the ages who know the Bible as the word of God. And so I want to look at just the end of chapter 1 now, verses 27 through to verse 30. There's a few, I think there's four exhortations in here, so look out for them. So we start off 27 to 30, chapter 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So as I say, we have four exhortations in those verses which Paul builds on in his thinking in chapter 2. So just go through those um, four exhortations. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This conveys to me the idea of honouring Jesus and acting as a pilgrim on earth and awaiting a heavenly citizenship. Uh, Two together stand fast in one spirit and with one mind strive together for the faith of the gospel. This is talking about uniting People together, uniting the disciples, showing love for one another. And the fourth one, do not be terrified by your adversaries. We must remember always that in Christ we have the victory. And um, Paul closes um, chapter one, he reminds believers that we not only have the privilege of being called by Christ, but also suffering for his sake Now let's turn to chapter 2 and the new material. So we read first of all verses 1 to 11. Remember what's just gone before, especially those exhortations. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, And given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, as I just said about chapter 2 in verses 1 to 4, Paul builds on what he's already written about unity at the end of chapter 1. Now we also touched on these verses in my introductory talk, I don't know if you remember that, way back in September. So some of this may sound familiar, but it's um, slightly briefer than it would have been otherwise. So in the opening four verses, Paul calls the church to unity through humility. And we have eight exhortations encouraging believers in their walk with the Lord Jesus. And here they are if you didn't spot them all. Fulfill my joy, be like-minded, be loving, be of one accord, be of one mind, do not be selfish or conceited, esteem others above yourself and look to the interests of others. How are we doing? Do we do all of those things? I think the key to enjoying all of these qualities in our lives is in verse 1, if we are in Christ. It's implied, I think, that we know the Father's love and mercy and we love each other. And if we are in fellowship of the Spirit, then we'll be able to witness to those around us by our unity and love and concern for each other. And remember what Jesus said in um, John's Gospel, John thirteen thirty five. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So a call to unity there, especially. Now having explained that humility among believers, um, th- that um, that humility will result in unity, Paul then points us to the extreme humility of Christ who is our example, remember, and cause us in verse 5 to have the same attitude towards humility as Christ did. And I think this humility can be summarised by one verse from uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 8. You probably know this verse, so you don't need to turn to it, but it's verse 10. It says, Though Jesus was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So that's, if you like, a summary of the humility of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, when we think about it. Now, back to Philippians 2. The next three verses, verses 6 to 8, are very important. And Paul has chosen the Greek words that he uses very carefully. It's important that we understand that Jesus is fully God, And fully man. And this is quite a complicated issue, but I'm going to try and keep it simple. When Paul says that Christ was in the form of God, the word used for form means essence or nature, which is unchangeable, and therefore states that Jesus was God. This similarly applies when Paul says that Jesus took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. Jesus' nature and essence were also those of a slave and as a man. Now Jesus was willing to give away the rights and honours of deity, not clinging to them or grasping them selfishly, we're told. And he made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself of his rights and privileges, but not his deity and you can see that from some scriptures. If you think about the, the scriptures, some of those privileges that he gave up were, for example, omnipresence. Jesus could no longer be everywhere when he was on, on this earth. He could only be in one place at one time. He gave up his omniscience. He didn't know everything. He didn't know when the end times were going to happen, did he? And he left behind his omnipotence, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in him to work and perform miracles. Now, again, trying to make this as simple as possible, um, I found an example that David Pawson gives about being David Pawson and having privileges. And he writes this, If I gave up my house and the car I drive and any other privileges that I have, that does not mean I cease to be me. I may have chosen to give up my privileges, but I'm still 100% David Porton. In the same way, although Christ emptied himself of his equality with God, he did not empty himself of God. I don't know if that helps you, but um, that's a well-known preacher, I'm sure you all know of him. Now the humbling of Christ continues in verse eight by him becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And we all know that crucifixion was the most cruel, most painful and degrading death at that time. And um, remember Jesus' reaction to that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew twenty six, thirty nine, he said, O oh, my Father, if it is possible. Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he went through with it, didn't he? Now having described the utter humiliation of Jesus, in verses 9 to 11, Paul then describes the exaltation of Jesus. Exalted to the highest place refers to the resurrection, ascension and glorification of Jesus following his humiliating death. All that he had laid aside was restored to him with more besides. Verses 10 and 11 point to the consummation of Christ's kingdom when his triumph over sin and his lordship will be acknowledged by every being. Those who bow the knee willingly will receive blessing whilst those who bow unwillingly face punishment. And this is all to the glory of God the Father. Now, we read the next passage of chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. And uh, see what uh, this says. Therefore, my beloved, so verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or laboured in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me." Now you may have noticed this passage also commences with a a therefore and is thus still linked to what was written previously. And again we see another batch of exaltations. I've counted four actual and one implied I think here. So the four exaltations. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Be children of God without fault. Hold fast the word of life. And the implied one, I believe, is be sacrificial and faithful in service to God, which will result in being glad and rejoicing. Now let's look at these verses in a little more detail. Paul now exhorts the Philippians to continue in their obedience to the commands of the gospel of Christ and the teachings of the apostles, but also encourages their Christian maturity without undue dependence on his being with them. Remember, Paul had already exhorted them in this respect in chapter 1, verse 27, which we read earlier. He said, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, etc., etc., And their affairs were being united in mind and spirit and progressing in their faith. Encouraging their Christian maturity, in Paul's words, is working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we touched on this slightly this morning. Salvation viewed by Paul has a past, a present and a future. And we can see that from various um, epistles of his. Just a few verses to give you a hint of this. Um, Ephesians 2.8, looking at the past, he says, for, great, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We cannot save ourselves because even faith is a gift of God and note that God's grace is present in every aspect of salvation. For the present, we can use the verse we're looking at now, verse 12, work out your own salvation. And for the future, we can turn to Romans 13, 11. You don't have to do it. For now, it says, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So believers have been saved, are being saved and will be saved. And it has to be said that working out our own salvation is nothing to do with good works per se, but starts with the believer's responsibility to obey God's word as we go through the process of sanctification. We are also to have fear and trembling. That is an awesome and righteous respect for God. And I found a couple of verses that I thought to express this beautifully. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, I don't know if you want to turn to that. If you wish, I'll read it out anyway. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Now back to Philippians, we see from verse 13 in our current passage that it's God himself who works in us. It is God's grace and his Holy Spirit who produce the desire for believers to live righteously. And if you think about it in a slightly different sense, um, Jesus confirms this in his words about the vine in John's Gospel. Chapter 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Our next exhortation, verse 14, is to do all things without complaining and disputing. And again, a few personal words. I believe this is a real challenge to most of us. Before I give my um, personal testimonies there, Both words have strong meanings. Complaining is like muttering or grumbling under one's breath and is similar to the behaviour of the Israelites during the Exodus and can be taken to be against God. Disputing is criticising and being negative and again can be directed at God. So two examples from my life to justify my statement that to do all things without complaining and disputing can be a real challenge. Uh, The first occasion was an in-house management course, which was to bond, this is purely secular, to bond people together. The course would be for the whole company, consisting of about 100 people, and they were split into about six groups with about 15 to 20 delegates in each group. And the structure of these groups was as follows. We had some directors and senior managers... We had another group with senior managers and middle management. We had another group with middle management and supervisors. And then we had supervisors and their staff and so on, all the way through the company, through the structure. These groups all met separately. And then in a group, say there was a small group, the tutor would choose two delegates and they would be sat facing each other. The first one was asked to give one criticism One criticism of their work colleague followed by three good and positive attributes. After he had done that, the other person chosen would do the same to his fellow colleague. That would work throughout the whole group and it would work throughout all of the groups. So every delegate on the course, the whole company, went through this same process. Now, have you guessed the result? Without fail, every delegate on the course agreed that it was easier to give three criticisms and one praise (laughs) rather than three praises and one criticism. So, are we complaining or grumbling? The second example, there's one or two here that may remember. I think Francis might remember this, perhaps Hilary, I don't know. The second example was as a member of a house group Uh, that I was attending. And we were studying Philippians, the book of Philippians. And we got to this chapter 2 and we decided that we would put into practice, we'd meditate on this verse to stop complaining and disputing. And for one week, from one meeting to the next, we would behave ourselves. Well, you can imagine how hard it was and uh, I don't need to tell you about the lack of success. Now, on a more serious note... As for complaining against God and the example of the Israelites and the Exodus, remember that those who complained wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and they perished there. They didn't see the promised land. So the challenge is doing all things with a joyful spirit. As believers, I think we have this responsibility and we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to help us in this and in other difficult tasks. Now we move on, verse 15. Children of God, being born again of his spirit, the Philippians had already become children of God. As believers progress along the road of sanctification, they will become blameless and harmless and without fault, as the exhortation in verse 15 challenges us. Note the words here, are similar to those used of sacrifices in the Old Testament times. Bearing that in mind, because there's a bit of Old Testament coming out here. By faithfully adhering to God's word, our lives may shine as lights in the world. The darkness that Paul saw in the world during his time, described as crooked and perverse generation, has really not changed, has it? And Paul himself was probably thinking about the Old Testament times, not having changed, and you look that up for yourselves in Deuteronomy 32 verse five. The same, virtually the same words are used. But as believers, we are possessors of Christ, the light of the world. And Jesus Himself tells us we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Matthew 5:14, and commands us: Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And moving on to verse 16. As lights in the world of spiritual darkness, we are to hold fast or hold forth or hold out the word of life, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the meaning here of holding fast seems to be offering something to others to take. Paul looks forward to the day of Christ, hoping that his efforts to nurture the faith of the Philippians have been sufficient for them to appear victorious before Christ's judgment seat. Then Paul will rejoice, knowing that he did not labor in vain. Of course, every believer can experience joy now in the present, when they know and serve Jesus obediently. And I was reminded of a lovely verse in um, John's third letter, verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Lovely verse, isn't it? Verse 17. Again, the Old Testament pops up. I think Paul's thinking about sacrifices here. His life being poured out like a drink offering before God. And he's also thinking of the sacrifice and service that the Philippians had offered to God, which spring from their faith. Service here has the connotation of priestly service. And thus they and Paul were priests together. Later in his letter, Paul describes the gifts and helps from the Philippians to his ministry as a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That's chapter 4, verse 18. And Paul could see the living faith of the Philippians and being the planter and nourisher of that faith, he could rejoice with them all. And in verse 18, as Paul was able to rejoice In his adverse circumstances, so the Philippians must learn to find real joy, even in adverse conditions, as they work out their own salvation and rejoice with Paul. So to conclude, we stop there with chapter 2 because it changes subject matter somewhat. Um, To conclude, let me reiterate some of the main points. Ask ourselves some real deep questions. Are we working out our own salvation in fear and trembling? As well as hearing these many exhortations which are given for the benefit of all believers, are we doers of God's word? Reminder from my talk about James. Do we need to check ourselves from complaining and disputing or are we rejoicing in all circumstances? Does our unity in this fellowship bear witness to the glorious gospel of Christ? And are we as individuals reaching out, offering the word of life to others? Now, I go back to um, chapter 1, verse 27, and think about conducting our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'd like you to leave you with these two verses from Peter's first letter, which no doubt we'll hear more about when Peter brings his talk on chapter 2 of the first letter. But this is what Peter writes to the believers. Are we like these believers? But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Amen.